Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams on day zero. If you're starting a new company and want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or email us at hello at notation.vc. The title sponsor for this season of Origins is Carta. This season is also supported by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Carta simplifies how startups and investors manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. They also offer fund administration, where you can see real-time data in the Carta platform and work with their team of experienced fund accountants. We've been happy customers with Carta for a few years now, and we're thrilled to have them as our title sponsor. Go to carta.com notation to get 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SBB services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the beginning of Notation. They've helped us form both Notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at CooleyGo.com. This is a very special episode of Origins focused entirely on portfolio construction, an often mysterious but critical area within the venture capital practice. We're recording this episode as a panel discussion rather than an individual interview, so I hope it's digestible even with a lot of voices around the table. We have three guests today that provide different perspectives on this important topic. Beezer Clarkson, an LP with Sapphire Partners, Aldo Lou Dennis, who's a partner at Initialized, a seed stage venture firm, and Trey Vassallo, a partner at Defy, an early stage venture firm most often investing at Series A. So excited to have you all here. This is our first Origins with a panel discussion. I think a, a great place to start is just each introduce yourselves a couple minutes on your background and your experience and why we asked you to be here today. Aldo, do you want to start? Hi, Hi. <laughs> I'm Alda. Uh, I'm a GP at Initialized Capital. Uh, we're on our fourth fund. Uh, prior to that, I was a managing uh, director at a fund called 137 Ventures and was there for fund one, two, and three. Uh, and I was the general counsel at Founders Fund many years ago, also for fund one, two, and three. So uh, portfolio construction uh, is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Beezer? So awesome. Um, so I'm Beezer Clarkson with Sapphire Partners. We are the division of Sapphire Ventures that focuses just on LP work, which means we invest in early stage venture funds, US, Europe, and Israel. Um, we are a happy and proud notation LP. I'll say that. So Nick can talk about <laughs> it if he wants. We love to geek out, as many of you might know, about numbers and portfolios. And this conversation around portfolio construction is one I love having. So that is my geek badge of honor. I'm so excited to be here with everybody. There's a lot of venture capital geekness happening so good. In, this, in this room, probably over the next hour. Um, and Trey? 
Hi. Yeah. So I'm Trey Vassallo. A few years back, I uh, co-founded Defy Partners along with Neil Sakara. The two of us had both previously spent over a decade at larger funds. I was at Kleiner for 11 years. He was at uh, General Catalyst. And we just saw these firms getting larger and larger and becoming, you know, challenging for early stage venture entrepreneurs to raise money from. So our whole goal was let's go raise um, a right-sized fund to back true early stage venture founders. Um, before my stint at Kleiner, I was actually a founder. So I f- co-founded Good Technology, helped scale that. And we ultimately sold that to Motorola. And uh, and then before that, I was just a robotics nerd. So, I think a good place to start is just to define portfolio construction. There's been tons of questions about it over the last couple of years. And honestly, even I get confused around what the heck it means. So what what is it? What does it mean? Why is it important? Do so you want to start with the legal definition? I don't think I have a legal definition. I have a working model in my head definition. I don't think there is a legal def- definition. In fact, I would caveat portfolio construction by saying that it's entirely aspirational um, and actually in practice never ends up being what you think it's going to be. Hmm. But having a good idea of where you want to go and how you get there is really important for putting together a fund. So it's more a practical approach. Like there's no legal, you're not going to like look it up and there's like a formal legal definition. I meant to before coming on this and I have to admit, <laughs> did not do my Wikipedia search. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I would say I think about it as just sort of the building blocks of the of the fund management. Mm-hmm. So again, this is sort of a working thought. Like, so I was list off some of the components and then we can discuss if these are the right ones. But what is the, to Trey's point, what is your fund size? And then how many companies do you want to invest in? And then what size check goes into them initially versus what are you thinking for the, how much gets saved for follow-on? Right. Um, What does that then mean for the ownership you're buying into, into a company? And that obviously gets to the stage that you're buying in and the round and all that stuff, which in this market might be wildly different from, say, I don't know, three months ago. Um, And I don't know if this is part of the definition working technical or legal, but also what does that mean for the amount of time one is going to invest a fund? So what sort of time diversity comes into play? And we can also talk about this or not, but how many people are also deploying the capital? Because part of this is, maybe this is more firm stuff than portfolio construction, but how many dollars per person is getting managed and how many companies per person and there's a myriad of ways of going about it. But those are all the sort of like the components that we think about and then the implications of like, what does that mean for the return potential of the fund and what are the size of the outcomes that need to be true if you want to hit a 2x, 3x and on up? What am I missing? Yeah, no, I think that was comprehensive and well said. I'd say there are a couple of other things too, you know, as we think about portfolio construction, which is really incredibly deeply embedded in your strategy, right? So this is this is part of as you're developing a new fund, you know, yeah, all of those things you mentioned are important. Also, I think the, you know, when you get to... Um, balancing risk throughout your portfolio. You're also looking at things like business model risks of the portfolio companies themselves, the sector risks that you're taking on. Um, Even within our early stage venture fund, you know, where our average check size is 5 million, we still pay a lot of attention to, you know, the the revenue traction. And do we have a kind of a variety of companies um, Mm. uh, from a revenue traction perspective? We've done companies that have had zero revenue and we've done companies that have had 
you know, uh, 8 million plus kind of recurring revenue. And so thinking about, again, creating a, a different profile of lots of different types of companies so that we're balancing our overall risk, I, I would say those are additional things that, that I would add on top of, you know, all the, the things that you mentioned, Beezer. I would also add that we think about uh, a question that Nick raised in terms of recycling and then how much we want to reserve for management mm -hmm. fees because presumably you'll be stacking on funds and so you don't need to reserve for the entire fund life. And it's obviously better from a returns perspective to deploy some of the later years uh, management fee capital if you can and, and put that money to work. So is it fair to say that portfolio construction is a strategic way to think about the entire portfolio of companies in order to maximize the returns of the fund beyond just obviously trying to invest in great individual businesses. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to dig into the to the recycling and management fee question? I think we're jumping way ahead, but it's something Beezer and I were talking recently. And just to just to understand, like just to go a little bit deeper on what you just said, could you could you just define that concept, um, both the idea of where the capital for management fee goes and then the idea of recycling and how that might impact a fund's return or portfolio construction? Sure. So a company typically has uh, two or two and a half cent, uh, percent management fee. Right. Uh, sorry, a fund does. And um, I actually- Each some, year. Each year. Yeah. Uh, mostly paid quarterly with some step down uh, after the investment period is over. And uh, it's this delicate balancing act of how much you want to make sure that you can reserve to pay your employees uh, and pay yourselves and how much you want to spend. And so if you take sort of the blended average over time uh, with with funds, it, you're probably looking at like a 10% overall Amount. So if you have a $100 million fund, $10 million of that will be, you know, reserved in theory for management fees over the life of the fund. And um, that can obviously, from a mathematical perspective, make a huge difference on your returns. Right. Because presumably that's capital not going into startups. Yeah, it's exactly. Just like it's just basically not, a write-off. It's not money at work. And so most funds are permitted to recycle up to 120% of that. So they can um, recycle and deploy up to 120 million for this hypothetical $100 million fund. And you can easily do back of the envelope math to see how the returns can really, really pop if you're deploying an extra 20 million on top of your original 100 million fund size. Um, and your uh, return multiple doesn't need to be nearly as high on your original dollars if you're actually right. hitting that 120%, which no one ever does. Right. So in other words, if you can like 3X or 4X, $120 million from recycled capital from exits or whatever else of the course of the fund, obviously that has a huge impact compared to the 4 or 5Xing the $90 million. Yeah, it's right. it's just like a basic hedge fund principle. If you're levering your capital to like 1.2x to generate the same returns that other people are are doing 1x on, uh, it's easier for you to to get outsized returns. Right. So, Beezer, from an LP perspective, do people do that? I mean, do do most managers that you work with do that, and why or why not? I think there's some education in the beginning, generally speaking, not just in our our managers, but just generally speaking, when folks are starting out funds, if you haven't 
portfolio construction is tricky, as we said. So I do think it's a conversation we get into sometimes with, with people who are newer to venture. Most of the existing managers we work with understand it doesn't, to, to your point, it doesn't make it any easier to recycle because um, you have to have early small exits right. to have the capital to recycle. And depending on the kind of companies you're investing in, that may or may not be happening. So knowing you're going to have the money to recycle is different from knowing that you'd like to. But yes, there seems to be a Pretty commonplace knowledge in the market that getting to a, at least 100% is the goal. It's just very much more art than science. Um, and occasionally you end up in conversations with folks who can't or don't or won't because something else is going on in the portfolio and it's just not possible. Like maybe they don't have sufficient early returns. And if you're in year eight of a fund and you have the ability then to recycle, like does that make sense or not? And those are active conversations you can get into because you're probably past the, invest the new investment commitment part. And, Maybe you want to do follow-ons, but at that point, is a follow-on so expensive? Do you really want to do right. it? And we've had a, sometimes you end up in those weird corner cases. Yep. Um, but generally speaking, I think people are aware of it. I think there's been, from an institutional LP base, a lot of discussion around it. So if GPs ask their LPs, they get told this. I, you know, you, you guys tell me, but I feel like it's pretty commonplace. But every now and then you bump into conversations where folks are like, oh, no, haven't been told. And you're like, I would say also, as a caveat, in other countries, it's not always as known that hmm. that was been a— from our, we've been working in Europe for a number of years, and in the beginning with some of the more sort of, um, I would say, more corporate slash bank-driven LP investments, they had less of an understanding of the power of recycling. Um, but over the last seven years, that has changed rapidly. But that's something we've seen over the last seven years change. Could each of you define your own portfolio construction strategy today? And I'm curious to hear it both from, you know, two GPs and an LP in the room. Sure. Well, maybe I, I guess I'll, I'll start. And partially because, you know, we we kind of crafted our fund. Um, we raised our first fund in 2017. And so this was actually critical as we went out and said, here's our, our strategy. And, um, you know, the idea was we raised $150 million. And um, our thesis at the time, which ironically, you know, now that we're on fund two, you can kind of go back and look, oh, here's our thesis. What did we do? Um, you know, we were able to actually stay very much on target. But our thesis was, you know, we were going to invest $5 million per company. We mm -hmm. wanted to own 15 to 20 plus percent of these companies. And um, the critical thing here is that, you know, the hardest thing to manage that we we touched on a little bit is your time. Um, and especially as you move from seed to early stage venture, the core part of what we're offering um, these young portfolio companies is we're joining the board and we're working really hard with them. So what we're trying to manage is concentration in our portfolio around some companies that we think can create great returns. So we want that ownership, but we also have to make sure that, you know, we have enough time that between the two partners that we had at the beginning can manage that flux of companies. So for fund one, our goal was sort of 15 to 20 portfolio companies, which is a bit on the small side, but is still doable. You know, I think um, for fund two, we actually increased the fund size to give us a little, you know, kind of 20 to 25 companies por per portfolio, because it really, again, comes down to this is a an outlier game. And so you want to give yourself enough shots on goal, but again, while managing your time, um, you know, our strategy around reserves, which is really critical, especially as you're trying to, you know, recycle and get to a hundred percent, you're, you're constantly balancing against a moving target of 
your reserves allocation. And, um, you know, for us, when we write an initial check of, let's say it's $5 million, we're reserving $5 million against that company as well. And and those reserves are constantly being looked at and changed and updated. Um, but, you know, for companies that are doing well, we want to double down on those. And there are some companies that we're still excited about that need a little more capital and we'll put money behind those. Um, and, uh, uh, let's see. So what else? Um, how does, the, how does yeah. that compare to your experience at KP, for example, which obviously is a, you know, fund that's been around forever and is on, I don't know, fund 20 or something <laughs> and is, is obviously a, a bigger fund. Like how do you, when you started Defy, how did the portfolio construction change. Yeah, well, it actually became incredibly critical because when we're starting a new fund, it's, you know, it's the two of us and we're picking a strategy that we have to prove to LPs that we can, um, you know, actually execute on. And and so that was really critical. And so we spent a lot of time um, in advance of ever pitching it to LPs um, and, you know, pressure testing it with other folks um, to make sure that it was something we could hit. And and like I mentioned before, we were really, really proud when we went back and ran the numbers, you know, literally our average initial check size was like 5.1. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, we've been able to manage the load and everything appropriately. Now, as we layer in other funds and continue to move forward, this is something we have to keep an eye on. But back to your question about Kleiner, I mean, it was such a vastly different kind of firm in that it was multi-stage, multi-fund, and had a lot of general partners. Right. And, um, and so the... You know, and as well, we had a lot of, you know, previous portfolio companies. So there was just a massive amount of right. moving pieces and information. Um, and uh, and so, you know, I don't, while it was a helpful environment to learn, you know, the importance, especially having seen several different funds, the importance of why 18 months is to um, doesn't give you enough time diversity in a fund versus two and a half to three years. You know, that was something that, you know, I was able to see over that time period there. Um, But the, again, the specifics around how do you manage a really small concentrated fund, you know, is something that is is quite different. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, Trey, I mean, your, it sounds like your sweet spot is largely like early series A. Yeah. And that has an implication for your broader portfolio construction. Mm -hmm. Initialized is largely seed, right? We are largely seed fund, yep. uh, and but you had come from also Founders Fund, which was largely probably a and multi stage closer to KP. At the time, Founders Fund was solidly Series A. Okay, um, and then One Thirty Seven Ventures is uh, a secondary fund, so a lot of later stage growth okay. stuff. So I've, I feel like I've seen a good variety at, at the seed. Um, you know, there's definitely more investments you're investing earlier. Our average check size is 2.7 million. Uh, our current fund is 225 million, and we are targeting sort of 40 to 50 investments out of it. Yep. Uh, we have a small bucket for pre-seed that's more of a scout type of program because we still want to be able to invest in companies uh, before they have any any idea of uh, or before they've really built anything sort of at the pre-seed stage. Um, you know, I would say our portfolio construction is is shifting and it has shifted from fund one to fund four and it will continue to move uh, for, for fund five. What we've realized is that we are 
massively under-reserved. Um, and we also, similar to Defy, have a very hands-on model. We have a number of partners that will come in and work with the company and provide advice on areas from product management and design to go-to-market and enterprise sales and a whole host of areas. And um, I would also say, similar to Trey, we are trying to juggle um, being really hands-on with a large number of companies. And I, I would think think that, you know, 40 to 50 companies is large by right. uh, any estimation. Um, and so that's something that we continue to think about. So um, our current uh, fund for portfolio construction is roughly uh, that number of companies, the 2.7 million on average, we're averaging about 15% ownership, almost on the dot with that. And um we are reserving half of the original check. And as I mentioned, we we don't think we're adequately reserved. Uh, we were reserving sort of half the original check for a follow-on and then another 25% yeah. for discretionary. And I think the discretionary bucket will end up being eaten up by the follow-on. Um, and we'll seek to fix that in fund five. Yep. Beezer. Yes. Um, I'm curious how you think about both Sapphire portfolio construction from an LP perspective, and then also how you think about looking for and evaluating GP portfolio construction under underneath. Okay. Take the first one, and if yeah. I lose the thread on the second one, yeah. can you remind yeah. me? So when I think about our portfolio construction, I think it goes to what you and Trey were talking about is like, what is the strategy? And from an LP perspective, it sort of shifts some of these things around. And I think both our strategy and our purpose as an LP is to be, I say this with deep love and respect, boring as possible. Like, mm. we just want to be here and be a steady Eddie and have, never have the GPs worry that we're not going to be here with capital. So we constructed our portfolio strategy based on that. And that that is why we switched to an evergreen-like structure, right, to create that permanence of capital. And our view of the way that we then look at how do we be time diverse is that we need to be consistent over time. We need to do the same thing every single day. So we have set up a strategy where we look to commit $100 million, give or take, per year, every year. It doesn't matter if it's a, you know, a phenomenal year and there's a ton of money in the market or it's a not-so-phenomenal market. I'm sure, can I swear on this podcast? Yeah. <laughs> um, and everybody's fleeing to the hills. Like Our goal is like the, the job of the time diversity and the steadiness of the portfolio construction mandates that we just continue doing that. Right. And that's, we bake that into our structure. And evergreen means your fund never. It means, well, the way that we've struck evergreen there, there is much like the word portfolio construction. Turns out there is no one definition, yeah. which lawyers love and hate. Ditto for our compliance officer. So sorry, Rob. Um, but the way we've interpreted it means that we've been able to, we are able to use our proceeds to meet future commitments. So that essentially we pulled money down from our LP, but over time will become self-sustaining. And that's our definition. So what we've then done is said, okay, if it's $100 million per year, call it. But again, we don't freak out if it's a little more or a little less. Then what's the check size that from our level gives us that amount of con – it's our version of concentration. So we loosely call it $10 million, But again, it's not necessarily written in stone. We can flex up and flex down. But that's sort of the target. And we tend to do 8 to 10 funds per year so everyone can do the math. Like it's all set. We also we, – we were able to create our own structure. So this is how we chose to do it purposefully, right? Because we were we birthed ourselves, so therefore we could choose, which has pros and cons that we can discuss another day. The way that then then comes out is also much like the conversation around people. That gives us the ability to know how big our team needs to be to make sure that we can be present. So when people say to us, why aren't you including new strategies? You're like, well, it actually flexes our strategy. And if we wanted to say, go to Asia, we would 
have to flex the dollar amount and the people. And mm-hmm. it's just, we set ourselves up to be very clear that these are choices we'd have to be um, consciously making. Eight to 10 managers a year. That's not new managers. Well, here. so what we've done, so when you're, we also work on a fee and carry basis, because again, we think that puts us in the best alignment with our managers. Um, but you can't do carry calculation on evergreen-ish structure. Like it doesn't make any sense. And so endowments and foundations have their own ways of doing it. And they use predominantly NAV. What we do is we create synthetic two-year buckets that act like a synthetic fund. And then we do the math on that, right? And we did that for multiple purposes. One, so we could do the math. And two, so that we could answer this question that you have, which is, we believe it is very healthy for an LP to be doing new managers. doesn't mean necessarily every single year, but there should be new to us, if not new to the world. Um, and the way you can kind of get at that is having a two-year pace, internal pacing so you can add new people within that construct. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how we did that. And I can bore you with any details you want. Um, the way we think about reserves from an LP perspective is a little different. You don't think of – it's a reserves – the best translation I can make is you assume that you're going to be doing multiple funds in the mm-hmm. future. And you – basically reserve the capital that way because it's, I don't know if it's not exactly equal, but it's pretty darn close. Um, doesn't buy it more ownership in the existing fund. So if you've got an awesome fund that's, you know, hitting the ball of the park, you, you got what you got. You can try to buy someone's secondaries and they're going to be like, yep. ha ha, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> so that's the only bummer, right? From an LP perspective, you don't get to come back and around. Hence the rise of the co-investment. Do you want me to push into your second question or take a break you know and go back? And, yeah, I'm going yeah. uh, to – it relates to my question, which is – so initialize – at least the current strategy is 40 to 50 companies at seed, effectively one-to-one reserves, and a $225 million fund. I think you'll find the math doesn't work out there, but yes. <laughs> okay, sorry. Ballpark, ballpark. Yes. Excuse me. Um, and Defy – is a later stage series A fund mm-hmm. with fewer companies, 15 to 20, and $150 million. In and actually, we've closed fund two, which is a 260 to 260. Mid- yeah. Okay. And so that'll have, you know, 20 to 25 ish companies yep. in it. So I'm, I'm curious, like, put Defy two aside. Yeah. At least the current, the, the current iteration, a larger, more company seed fund and a smaller, more concentrated series mm-hmm. A fund. Like, what does that say about your views of the market and the world and your firms? Because you'd normally think like later stage, slightly later stage, bigger fund. Like, what does that say? Like, what does that reflect about your view on strategy? So maybe I'll take a, an attempt at this. I think part of this is you know, you look at, we do very different things. And I think a lot of people don't differentiate how seed is and can be quite different than early stage venture. And it really does come down to time per company and concentration. Mm. And, um, and so, you know, also, if you look at the history of the people who started these firms, too, they, they come from having different sets of skills that they're, you know, right. basically using to execute on that strategy. So both Neil and I came from, you know, these bigger multi-stage firms where what we did was write early stage venture checks, have a very concentrated portfolio, work closely with companies and help Sit them on scale. The board. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And so we were playing into our strengths and said, we know how to do this well. Um, we see that there's a, an opportunity in the market to to do this, focus on this, and 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 create great returns for our LPs. So that is what we're going to focus in on doing. Um, 
but that absolutely coexists very well with um, seed funds of a similar size that have a different strategy that come in early. Um, and so, you know, I don't think, I don't think they're at odds. They're just, they're slightly different businesses. Mm-hmm. I would agree with Trey. I think it's more reflection on the team and what the okay. team likes yeah. working on, preferring to uh, work with companies that are pre-product market fit, uh, the sense that uh, we're builders. I think that sort of guides um, where where the investment, um, the right investment point was. I think, you know, and Beezer can speak better to this, but it's just a different risk return profile, you know, at, at, at various junctures. Um, and what guides us is sort of how we want to work with our companies and at what point we want to work with them. Yep. It seems like something I hear amongst actually both LP and VC communities these days. And I, I find that a lot of more emerging GPs are talking about this a lot more is portfolio concentration. I'm curious, maybe from the LP perspective first, and this goes back to how you maybe advise and think about allocating to GPs. Like, aside from, I get the time perspective, uh, like you can just only provide so much value to so many companies at any given time. But why does it seem like everyone (laughs) like leads towards these like highly concentrated portfolios? Because there are counterexamples. Like, you know, YC invests in hundreds of companies every year. And their model seems to be working. And I know historically some funds, like I think first round historically has had like 50 or 60 companies in a fund and some of their early funds did great. So I'm curious, yeah, from anyone's perspective, but also from LP's perspective, why you trend towards these more concentrated funds, if that's true. Oh, it'd be so great to look through everyone's portfolio and know the answer to that question. (laughs) Um, I think there's probably sort of traditional... uh, investing thoughts out there that sort of, if you concentrate, it's it's sort of basic. I think people go back to basic math, which is if you have a concentrated portfolio and you get a piece of a major company, like the returns are stronger right. than if you have a smaller piece. And I think it's pretty, I think you can boil it down to something that's pretty simplistic. Right. And it also goes to the things of time and how much can you manage and do you, you know, you don't want to if you index all of venture, you don't end up with awesome returns, right? Like all venture is to trace point. Like there's an, it's an outlier business. So the question is, how do you capture outliers? And there is the part about venture that's so, at least for me personally, awesome and fascinating. Turns out there's a variety of ways mm-hmm. and there isn't mm-hmm. one just way. So like, that's right. Yay. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Cause it would be super boring if there yeah. was just yeah. one way, but it kind of gets to why people like concentration. Cause you, I think the basic thinking is your, your odds of making money, more money is higher. I don't think it's set in stone, but yeah, and and maybe I'll say similar, but but in slightly different words. I mean, every single company you invest in takes time and effort. There's some fixed costs to doing that, and it's our job to be on top of those companies. And so, you know, I think many folks in this industry have had companies where they pour all this time and effort into them, and you know, in the end, wish if I only had more <laughs> of this company. And so, you know, as we look at our portfolio, one of the things that's really important to us is that any single one company can return the fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of thinking for us was a really important thing here. You know, we don't need to have, you know, two Facebook level companies in order to be able to return the fund. Every single CEO and founding team that we're investing in really matter to us. And that drives where we're spending our time. And um, and so this, you know, link then back to, you know, it, it really comes down to this time element and wanting to get paid on, you know, and get the returns for the time we're spending. 
I read somewhere that you get the benefits of diversification like at a dozen. And so if you're already getting the benefits of diversification at a number that is relatively low for a single number of companies, um, you know, at that point, you're just adding burden for right to, to, to like triple right. and double and double and triple and quadruple right. that number. I think it's obviously a little different at seed when it's just super early. A lot of times, you know, uh, sometimes free products, sometimes free product market fit. And so we, we definitely uh, have more portfolio companies and are trying to manage that. Yep. So in other words, like if you take it to its logical extreme, you ideally want to construct a portfolio of a single company that does unbelievably well, <laughs> right? And Can you pick you that one perfect company? information? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and so every other company in that portfolio that doesn't do as well drives down your returns. So the question is, right, how do you optimize for a really big company um, or giving yourself the best chance to find that really big company in the smallest portfolio of companies? That is the magic question. Got it. Okay. When and where- Tell us the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's one. <laughs> you go start the company. I'm um, going to put it all on yeah, this side. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all on um, green. <laughs> when, it, when and where are GPs and LPs aligned and not aligned? You know, it, particularly around portfolio construction. So like, you know, one thing I hear every once in a while from managers is like, our LPs want us to invest in, you know, 10 companies in a fund. Because, because, they have diversification across all their managers. And so it's it's in the same, same way, you know, VCs ideally want each portfolio company to take a lot of risk and return the fund, go big. How do you all manage that basically? And like, where where are you aligned and not aligned with either your LPs or GPs? It could be specifically around number of companies, but it could be on, I think, many different, you know, um, axes. Okay, I'm going to start by, by just offering this as a construct. I think this kind of gets at, it helps you figure out your GPLP fit. Mm-hmm. Because my, again, this could be a super naive response, but my guess is if there's real misalignment, or I would say disagreement on how the portfolio construction will work over time, then the GP won't want that LP and that LP might not put the money in. So it's unlikely. Right. You so might, in other words, you, might, you figure that out up front, ideally. Probably. Yeah. Or if you're in the midst of a fund and then it stops being that way, the then there might be a change of yeah. Well, that's, that's what I was going to say. You know, it's it's not uncommon to see strategy shift, right? And right. so that actually, you know, again, I, I hinted at this earlier. You know, one of the things we've been really clear with our LPs is, you know, we are on strategy. We are doing what we said we are going to do. That doesn't always happen. And so I think when you run into that strategy shift, then the firm that as an LP you thought you were investing in and the exposure you thought you were getting, you're not. And then you've got misalignment. Yes. Um, and there's ways of dealing with it. Like we've certainly had some of our managers come back and say, hey, we thought the market was going to look like this, and it's not. So we're we're shifting this way. We're not like, you know, moving out of the country. We're not like going radically into something different, but maybe it's, I don't know, we're going to end up doing five more seed checks, and we're mm-hmm. going to reserve a little differently. Or maybe we might need to come back to you and have a conversation about reserves. We want to try this. And our guidance is always like, just let's stay in communication mm-hmm. because- when I when Trey's telling these stories, what I hear is the fact that people got surprised and we're all human. And there's some awesome surprises like, hey, I bought you a present. And there's yeah. some surprises <laughs> when you're like, oh, that's a bummer. And just trying to stay on the like happy surprise, not miss surprise. But yeah. are you tracking to the granular level of the portfolio companies what exposure you have? I thought it was more of a broad like 
we don't want too much of this network or... Yes, somewhat. I mean, we do... I'm not sure you mean by track. I mean, we don't... Um, we, we have the quarterly report. So therefore, we're... And sometimes people will detail in quarterly reports, it's a Series A or a seed. And so the information sets vary. You usually get the actual dollars that are committed. And so we try to understand because we want to know... It's sort of like when you look through your mutual funds, right, as an individual, you want to understand like where the dollars are going. So we try to understand what we have that's actually at work at seed or Series A or as it matriculates up and companies raise follow-on Another part of the portfolio construction is you might start at seed, but to your point about reserves, the majority of your fund money might actually be going in at A, in your case, maybe B or C. So as an LP, we want to be conscious of that and say, well, where's the where's the bulk of the dollars in this fund really going? And so we absolutely do track. I mean, there's only so much information you get. So I don't know if your definition of track and my definition of track is the same, but like I can't get to the level of knowing the components of the revenue and like which customers are making it up. Like that would be super interesting and awesome. And we love talking to our GPs about that, but we don't have an ability to know that unless you tell us. But is it like I own 1% of Facebook through these three, three different measures? Yeah. 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 Okay. Cause then this goes to, I think part of the question Nick was asking, which is sometimes when you evaluate a fund, it is the look-through basis that can be compelling. If it's a super concentrated fund and you're like, oh, well, I'm going to end up owning 1% of these 10 companies. And therefore, even if they're only 10 companies, they can move the dial. And other times it's, I'm on a look-through basis in a seed fund, you might own such a small percentage. That's not the motivating reason, but it's the overall aggregation of the returns that will be interesting. So, but we only do venture, like we're fully focused. So I don't know if everyone else applies the same level of, sort of understand the overall nature. If you're if you're a very, very multi, you know, hundreds of billion dollar pension fund, presumably not. But I don't know. I've never worked there. I mean, I think another area of potential misalignment is that several fund of funds and also other LPs really want later stage direct co-investment exposure mm-hmm. and deal flow. And, you know, that has to be somewhat factored into your reserve strategy and how far you're going to start getting your pro ratas into. And so a question for us is, do we reserve into the B for our pro ratas, for example? Um, And I do think that that creates a source of potential misalignment when someone is investing in you at an early stage to get access to your deal flow. Hmm. How do you manage that? Because I know that is, that seems like a popular topic amongst the GPLP folks. So, and just to, just to describe it, like a lot of early stage funds historically have only done follow-on investments maybe through seed or series A. Now many funds are raising either directly into their funds or opportunity funds and growth funds to be able to invest in those companies, maybe even through BC, you know, up till IPO. LPs historically have done direct investments in many of those companies at those stages. So all of a sudden, in some cases, maybe the GP and the LP are competing for those deals. How does that get managed? I mean, we take a very sort of easy approach to it, yeah. which is, you know, we we try not to do too many SPVs. I think that they're generally a time suck. And we are actually pretty happy to introduce later stage investors to our companies. We have a lot of them, as I mentioned. And so there's no way that we will have enough capital, especially since I've mentioned that we are generally under-reserved right. and historically have been so. Obviously, down the road, it's something we'd like to fix and being appropriately reserved is first. And then, you know, maybe we'll get to a world where we can take advantage of some of those opportunities. But at this point, um, we're perfectly happy to uh, make direct introductions to companies mm-hmm. and let them take advantage of later stage opportunities if they want them. 
Sapphire has a growth fund too. Correct. Do you ever find situations where you're competing with that growth fund? Forget about other managers, like even within Sapphire. Since we don't write large direct growth checks, we don't compete with our own fund. But one thing that I didn't mention about our platform, this brings up, but it's a great point because it sits in the middle of this conversation is when we build our platform, we have three... We actually have a third. We have a a sports-focused early-stage fund. Um, But all of our funds operate independently, right? We all have our own teams. We all have our own capital. They're all structured into their own funds. So we're the only one with an evergreen-like structure. The other ones don't. We have our own individual investment committee. So we've taken an approach of we all live in harmony on the same platform, but we are um, not—like, I don't vote on the direct deals kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And and we, we believe on the LP side that our GPs prefer it this way right? That we can keep things separate. Um, so our growth team absolutely looks at the world of awesome startups and early stage companies and who to invest in. And sometimes that includes companies in our underlying portfolio. And like Aldo was saying, sometimes our early stage managers are super happy about that and they'll you know show them companies proactively. And that's lovely. Their job is to invest in the best companies. Our job is to invest in the best managers. There should be an automatic harmony between the two. We don't force it. There's no, you have to do X, Y, Z. Our growth team invests in and out of the, whatever it is that they want to do. Other LPs have different models. So we appreciate there's a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and I would say when funds pitch us, it's super idiosyncratic now how many people want LP co-investments and who doesn't. And it's completely predicated on the fund strategy, the, the fund strategy, not the LP strategy, right? Like, is there a pro rata that's useful for you to, you being the GP, to give to the LPs? Or is it not useful because you have an opportunity fund, you want to do something different with it? There's two, whatever it is, if it's an earlier seed fund, we find people to be typically more interested or open to it. Larger, later stage funds, for all the obvious, they're larger, mm-hmm. later stage, are less interested. So we want to structure ourselves to be sort of um, Switzerland in that. Mm-hmm. That's our way of thinking. But it's, it's definitely become more of a topic in the last two years than, you know, 10 years ago. I don't remember this being as big a thing. Am I No, we're having he's doing direct investing as much. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I feel like that's sort of come on strong as they've yeah. been wanting concentration in end portfolio companies, right? So. Correct. And to get out of the J curve mm-hmm. and to get exposure and as companies stay private longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. That, that's a big part of this issue, right? How about SPVs? I know some firms do them, some don't. How do, how do, how does that approach affect like your overall portfolio construction strategy? Do it. Does anybody do them here? I, I've worked on several. I, yeah. as a rule, dislike them. Um, my experience has been that every LP you talk to will say yes. They would love to get the data room. They would <laughs> love to talk to the CEO, and um, they can never move fast enough. And they right. don't say yes, and ends up being a huge time suck. On the other hand, I understand the merits of getting deal by deal carry and extra capital uh, to, that sits on top of your fund, and. I understand why people do them for probably greed reasons and right. potentially reasons to that are, involve supporting the company uh, to take a, a more generous light on it. But we're all super busy, and I feel like it's better to just make the direct introduction and have have those conversations happen that yep. way. That makes sense. Does Defy do? SPD's you know, we're three years cleaner. in, so yeah, no, um, no. I would say it's early. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I think also just to hit on the point that we were talking about with, uh, you know, potential co-investments and reserves, you know, the way at least our strategy has been, you know, we're an early stage venture fund. We get all of our ownership with our first check. And so, you know, our reserve strategy is not to power it in later. Those are just going to be, you know, lower multiple opportunities, but it's to protect our ownership in the next round 
and support the company. And so, you know, our 100% reserves are, uh, you know, focused around that. And so we are very well aligned to offer uh, pro rata portions in the series C's and D's of our exciting companies to our to our LPs. And, you know, like I said, it's still early, but, you know, maybe there'll be an, an SBV or two in there, but, um, you know, it, we'll see how that, that yep. comes together. So I think the thing we've been very vocal on is a lot of people have created, you know, opportunity funds and things like that. And, and I certainly saw that uh, evolve at KP where, you know, we started with the main fund and had multiple funds. And, you know, my my concern about SPVs and other funds is it just creates massive potential for strategy drift and shift because it takes your focus off of mm. your main strategy and starts having you do other things. And so, you know, we've been super clear around you know, it's early stage. That's where our ownership comes from. And, uh, and it's not going to be, we're not, we don't want to get distracted by getting excited about the, this, you know, other later stage opportunity. So half the fund at Defy and maybe half the fund at, uh, at Initialized and these are, you're constantly thinking about re-ups and follow-on decisions. Like those are all for follow-on investment decisions. And I mean, even our, in our own experience at Notation and at Betaworks before that and others, those are often really difficult decisions to make. I've seen many approaches that are just say, hey, if we have pro rata and the company's raising more money, we'll just do it kind of like algorithmically. We don't necessarily do that at Notation. And so I'm curious, curious how you think about those decisions, especially because often you're making those decisions like 12 to 18 months after you've initially invested in the company. There's a little bit more information, but maybe not a ton. And ideally, you're trying to put the half of the fund's capital into the best portfolio companies mm -hmm. in your fund. So how do you, is there an algorithmic approach that you go about? Is it more art and science? I'm curious how other folks, and, and for Beezer, like how you think about once you are with a manager, like making those re-up decisions. We definitely take it as a case-by-case -case decision. Uh, we actually, every two weeks, do a reserve session and okay. change the reserves from a company to company basis. And again, that's aspirational. It's, uh, you know, depends on what the valuation ends up being and depends yep. on traction. And we do spend, I actually think we have an incredible amount of information from the initial investment to that point, 18 months later or, or 12 months later, because we're spending so much time with the company and presumably they've gone from a sort of a product point to a product market fit point, um, which really tells you a lot about how the team works together, how they iterate, as well as what their customer base is like and uh, how they're getting that growth and how they're, where they're, where they're finding that fit. Um, and so we do a, an entire process wow. around. So that's really interesting. So you have like literally a list I'm imagining in like an air table and in each cell, there's like a number next to a company that is in theory representative of the amount of capital that you want to invest in that company going forward. Correct. Okay. And what are some of the inputs to those decisions? I think then it is definitely more of a subjective input, which is we, uh, you know, have a CRM that we've built ourselves that has the metrics of the company and, uh, you know, subjective impressions of every meeting. And that's taken into account. And when the pro rat investment decision uh, comes to a head, you know, we do a, a, another investment memo around what's changed since our mm -hmm. initial investment. Interesting. Trey? Yeah, well, reserves is a really important part of what we do because it is so much of the fund. And, you know, I think that, again, the thing that's 
critical about what we're doing is we're on the board of most of these companies. So we've got a lot of really good information about right. how things are going, how the fundraising is coming together, um, how excited we are, how, how, you know, what's the market saying about this company. And so, you know, this is some, this is a number that we pay a lot of attention to. And, um, and so we're constantly uh, moving things around. How do you decide not to make a yeah, follow-on so decision. We've like done, particularly We've done that too. Yeah. yeah. In fact, this was actually something super early on. Um, you know, we make a handful of smaller check um uh investments and there was one company that uh it basically got a crazy high term sheet from a firm hmm. and they came back to us and said, you know, we love working with you guys. We really want to work with you guys, but you know, are you in at this price? And we said uh, no, actually, we really aren't. Um, we love you. We love the company, but you know, we're not right. excited to invest that much money at that price. But good for you. That's great. And so we try to maintain a lot of discipline around, uh, you know, making sure that every check we write is at a valuation that we think is market appropriate. Because right. if you know, it, it catches up with you at some point. In other words, it's not just about picking the best companies in the portfolio. It's picking the best companies, the best potential return based well, on the company and In the context of their financing valued. risk, right? right? So, and that's the thing is that so many companies get stuck in these hype cycles and you have to be able to look through that and ultimately go, you know, when we look at reserves, it's, okay, here's what we think this financing of this company is going to look like in, you know, 12 months. Um, and what piece of that do we want to be? Yep. That makes sense. Caesar. So, let me start with the answering is how we physically do it. And then I don't know if there's more we can peel by the onion. So when we commit to a fund, you go into our model and you basically assume on a in perpetuity sort of like basis that we're just going to keep repeating in and we sort of budget that way. And I think this is part of why when GPs ask, why does it take LPs so long to make a decision? Because it's sort of like a forever decision. And ultimately, <laughs> it's not really forever, It's like right? a 15-year decision, Well, each right? fund is I 15 mean, years. Yeah. And you assume you're going to be a in second fund. multiple. So, no, you sort yeah. of assume like three right. to five, right? Because yeah. yeah. you're like, mm. Like, yeah. if this is right. awesome and we're all going on the path together, like, yeah. why would we stop ever, right? right? So it's not, it's a, it's a really like a 30, it's like a multiple decade potential commitment, <laughs> right? And there's, so- so it's 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 different math, and that's why sometimes it feels like LPs are slow to make a decision, but it's it's not it's a long term decision, right? Um, so we do that. That's sort of what, what it is, and then over time, I mean, the reup is different. I mean, some sometimes you if you stay close, you know the manager. It's a much more facilitated conversation. But there are other definitely times you want to meet new people. New people come on. Sometimes there is shifts in strategy. Um, there's absolutely some folks who will then to, you know, the point that Trey was making about sometimes funds get bigger and they move into different geographies or different investings. And then sometimes the GP and the LP are no longer trying to go at the same thing. And that's when sometimes LPs will step out, even from a successful fund, it doesn't mean things are going badly. Um, sometimes GPs want a different kind of LP base. We've had GPs come back to us and say they want a much more like corporate strategy, corporate kind of base, and they don't actually want some of these sort of more, um, like they want to pick people who are going to work a different way with their companies and like, that's what they want and vice versa. And so, so things do shift. Um, but that's generally speaking the closest analogy I can make to the re-up decision. <laughs> How do you manage outlier situations? Like, it sounds like everyone is super focused on- Super disciplined people in this room. <laughs> yes. It sounds, I mean, it seems like that. Like, how, how do you- how do you approach either investments or managers or situations that are 
off center and explain that as part of your strategy? Like I'm sure, Trey, you've invested in a company that um, is maybe a little farther along or or has zero dollars in revenue or, you know, um, Alda, I'm sure you've invested in a pre-IPO company. I'm just making <laughs> this up. But like, how do you, how do you reconcile basically like the fact that this is an outlier business with a very disciplined portfolio construction model? I mean, that's why you have a partnership, right? So I think a lot of this is, you know, I think it's always good to to push on your assumptions and don't always live within a box. And so, you know, I'm just thinking recently that there was this company that was brought to us by, you know, a longtime friend of mine who knew this company really well, um, you know, and it was using AI and an incredible computational, you know, platform, um, but it had to deal with, it had to do with um, uh, the healthcare industry, you know, and in the end, there are so many things that lined up and were super interesting and relevant. And, you know, we talked about it and we're like, look, we just don't understand this industry. Uh, this may be the next greatest thing there, but, you know, it's just too off target. And so I think the important thing is it, it's good to pressure test those things, have those conversations, but ultimately, you know, also take pride in the things you turn down because you're trying to stay on, on you know, on strategy. I would actually say the opposite. I think the the most experienced uh, and investors that I admire most, you know, they have high conviction on things that are sometimes inexplicable. And if I were on the LP side, that's what I'd want to invest in is someone who really believes in something and sees something maybe that no one else does. And so I think we should allow for that. And there should definitely be exceptions made. Uh, because what you really want is to get that level of high conviction, because it also means you'll, you're willing to spend more time with the company, you're willing to do more work, um, and I think that companies should also be trying to select for that when they they find. I don't think that's mutually exclusive with, with what I was saying. So just just to be super clear, I agree. Like if you absolutely have conviction about something, and in these guidelines can be broken at some point, but I think it's also good. I mean, that's why you have a partnership, right? And partnerships, the whole goal is to pressure test, right? Conviction and things like that. So I, I, I definitely absolutely agree with you on that point. Bezer, at what, at what point does do exceptions overwhelm the whole strategy? Like at what point does, um, you know, uh, a manager that you work with say like, well, out of our 20 companies, like five were different. Like, does that matter? Like, at what point does it make you, I guess, nervous as an LP? The bummer of the venture industry is that the intrametrics are really, really hard to know as like, as a truth, right? right. So the cop-out answer is, well, it depends if they were right. So 15 years from now, right. let me get back to you, right. <laughs> which, is, which is ultimately where it gets tested, mm -hmm. but that's not really helpful over the course of the next 15 years. So, I mean, again, I just go back to the, it's about communication. And if someone has conviction mm -hmm. saying, hey, we did this, here's the risk that we took, here's why we took it. Here's a percentage of the firm that we are, or sorry, the fund that we are willing to risk. And again, it's just, I don't, I don't know if there's a better answer, please educate me. I just think it's really hard. And it, this is an exception business. Mm -hmm. It's a conviction business. Sometimes convictions are right and then it's amazing. And sometimes the conviction's right, but like, I don't know, the company runs into a challenge or things happen that are completely exogenous and that it's still right. It just doesn't land. And, mm -hmm. and in those situations, if you've over-communicated the rationale and the reason behind it, it's like, yeah. you can, it's yeah. okay. I mean, I can't, I can't promise again. every LP will respond this way, yeah. but I can say that I've, I've generally speaking, find there to be much more empathy amongst LPs 
that feel like they understand what the GPs are doing versus being like, so sorry, we took all our money and went to play blackjack and didn't tell you. And can we have more? Like generally fine people feel disenfranchised. They're less receptive. (laughs) Again, I just think it's human nature. I don't think any of this, I think we're all just showing up the way we are as humans and it just gets sort of institutionalized Mm -hmm. in forms. Um, So last question, I'm, I'm curious for each of your firms, maybe some of like the, the, the major learnings over the last couple of years. And also like, as you look ahead, how you think your strategies might evolve with the market. Like maybe there's something today that you feel like isn't a hundred percent there that you kind of like feel like might improve with the market over, over time or things that you're working on internally as a firm to, to improve. One thing I've been worried about is these companies that are super early and may need more time to get to product market fit and um, the market not seeing what we see and Hmm. um, thinking about that going into a potential economic downturn and having enough reserves so that we can continue to support the companies that we feel, uh, you know, high conviction on. And so that's something that's going into this calculus on, um, you know, what should we be reserving behind these companies? And I'm actually curious as to Beezer's perspective, because she sees a whole bunch of funds um, in terms of how they are doing their reserve models and their portfolio construction. Interesting. Like, in in other words, in a time where financing might not be as easy, making sure that you as a firm and a fund can support those companies through that period. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, we just did a session uh, at our office with our partnership about sort of what these particular terms mean in a term sheet and how they're going to be changing, um, you know, looking back on specific examples of companies that I've worked on where um, they may have had a full ratchet discussion or they may have had a redemption uh, right that was inserted in the term sheet that really we haven't seen in the last you know, three to five years, but um, are actually starting to creep up more even now um, and and how, you know, you can defend against them or whether you should or shouldn't. I don't, I will answer, but I actually want to hear Trey, if you don't mind. Because <laughs> well, you'll give you, you the last word. You've, no, no, because yeah, I think my last word is going to, well, that's a bummer because I don't think my last word is going to no, be as great as your no, word, no. but you've, you've, you've actively done this through up and down markets, right? Right. And I mean, I've seen I've seen it from an LP perspective, but I feel like the the in the trenches, like I defer to Trey because I can tell you, yeah, my worry list is really long. Yeah. <laughs> well, so so I guess, and and maybe I'm not going to quite answer the question you were hoping because I was sort of stuck on your point around what are the key learnings and things that we're hugely focused on, and the big thing that I keep coming back to is how you manage time. Mm. And in venture, I think a lot of people think they can scale venture firms by just adding people, and that doesn't work because when you add people, you also add investments and pace and it just sort of compounds in a an overhead in a, in a, at, at yeah firm. in a way yeah. that people management so, yeah. so we don't think that venture firms actually scale well so you know we started with two our goal is you know four <laughs> so we're talking about you know so part of what we're figuring out and spending a lot of time on is how do you bring the right people in the firm in the right way to successfully scale the platform and continue to do what we're doing and stay on strategy. And so we, we've done a couple of things that we've experimented with. Um, you know, one is our SAGE program that, you know, a lot of people have versions of this, venture partners and other types of things. And in our version of, of this program, we have incredibly talented affiliated executives who are full-time CEOs who are constantly seeing great deals, um, who are going to be advising and working with companies 
companies anyway. And we compensate them in a way where it's very generous. If they bring something into us, if they take a board seat, they're getting compensation that looks more like a partner compensation. Mm. And so I know a lot of people historically would be, you know, pretty frugal with compensation, but we've been able to pull together a slate of amazing people who know a whole lot more about different industries where then, you know, for example, we now have a couple of companies where the board members are these folks and we're kind of the observer. And so we're getting massive amount of credit for their industry knowledge. Um, they're helping build this company better than we could, but yet we're still very involved, but in a much more leveraged way. So so that's where we're trying to figure out how to, to, to kind of you know, make sure that a small group of people can make a big impact. Um, and then we also added a new person recently who brought more relevant recent operating experience. And as you look at what our portfolio companies need, um, you know, hiring, customer acquisition, there's some top things. And so our newest hire, Brian, came from running customer acquisition at a portfolio company. And so it's without building out massive services, which we're not positioned to do, that's not strategically what we want to do. How can we bring into the investing team key, um, you know, uh, experiences um, and, and ability to dramatically help our portfolio company in a meaningful way? So I don't think I got to the question that you okay, were I'm going to tee you at, up. But right, okay. I'm going to tee you up, and then you guys can both answer this. Right. So high level, when things get, this is when things get really bad. This is not like, oh, there's six months, and maybe it's a little mm -hmm. slow, and we all actually can sleep seven hours a night. Like, this is not that kind of yeah. <laughs> slow. But when things get really bad in, like, 2001, two, and right. even 2009 and 10, which was very scary nationally, mm -hmm. but venture kind of came back really fast, mm -hmm. right? I mean, my worry list is long because you see exactly what you think you see, that funds have to stand behind their companies. And then triage occurs because that's the way math forces one to choose. I don't think people want to do it. And this yeah. is where you guys can fill in from the real world. I'm just watching the footprints in the sand. But you have to pick the dollars. Even if you wanted to put more money in all the companies, maybe not. And ones get picked and the ones that can raise raise and the ones that don't sometimes don't survive and it's horrible. And sometimes funds don't survive because of that, because LPs do their own version of triage when the re-ups happen. So that's the, my long worry list. That's deep. And there's definitely been a lot of TVPI created in the last few years and how long that gets extended at a, let's say, plateau versus mm -hmm. down. Who knows, right? The potential silver lining is there's also a there's still a lot of money sitting in some very large funds. So what I don't know how to do the math on is, to your point about ratchets and things coming in, is there still enough of an overhang of dry powder out there to fund the companies? It's just going to be at really different kinds of terms. And I don't know, my crystal ball only gets to that point of being worried. It doesn't give me the full answer. And if you have, <laughs> if you have, if you have presumably if you have reserves and capital available during that time, you can protect yourself Correct. or even buy more ownership in those companies. Correct. And if you don't, you get slaughtered. Yeah. And also yeah. those companies make a lot harder choices about how they're scaling their businesses. And and those can often be really good choices because what we're seeing a lot of right now is, you know, too much crazy capital buying customers in uneconomic ways. And, um, and, and, you know, you look back historically, every single year, phenomenal companies are created. And when times are tough, mm -hmm. you know, those entrepreneurs just do a lot more with less. And the, those companies are arguably fundamentally stronger, better companies. Yes. So I think it all comes down to, you know, being on top of our portfolio about making sure we're running the portfolio companies as efficiently as possible for, you know, any of these potential issues. And 
I have seen this too, and I, I don't have the numbers to tell you how frequent this is um, to that point when sometimes downturns are actually super, there's good things come out of it, right? It's not all just my worry list. Sorry. I go to the worry list first. Um, but also like, this is why people used to do, sometimes do annex funds, right? Which, you know, now people don't call them that that much, but it was- The rainy day fund. The rainy yeah, day yeah, fund, yeah, whatever yeah. it is. Because it literally is like, these companies are strong. It's just kind of crappy out there right now. So keep feeding them and they're going to come through better and stronger and LPs will get behind that. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be interesting. All right, downturn. Here we come. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you. Thank you all so much for doing this. This was fantastic. And um, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having us. Thank Thank you. This podcast was created by Notation. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams from day zero. Notation companies are always hiring. Check out jobs.notation.vc. You can also find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Carta for being our title sponsor. I'm sure you're familiar with Carta. Carta changed the way private companies manage their cap tables and 409A valuations. Companies and venture firms like Robinhood, Flexport, and USV use Carta to manage billions of dollars in equity. Carta also offers fund administration services for investors now. We use Carta at Notation and recommend it to all our companies. Save time running your back office with Carta. Get 10% off at carta.com notation. Terms and conditions apply. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP.